0: The clock stopped at one seventeen. There was a long, sheer, bright light, and a series of low concussions. I think it's October. But I can't be sure. I haven't kept a calendar for years. Each day is more gray than the one before. It is cold and growing colder as the world slowly dies. No animals have survived and all the crops are long gone. Soon all the trees in the world will fall. The roads are peopled by refugees towing carts and gangs carrying weapons. Looking for fuel and food, Mostly, I worry about food, always food, food in the cold and our shoes.
1: Thank you everyone for joining us for this special episode, which is not really a perfect organism episode or a Shoulder of Orion episode, but this is uh, something that I was, I've was, i been thinking of for quite a few weeks now. I've been talking with Patrick and Dan, and then we have a guest on who I'll inter- introduce in a moment. But the title of this episode is The Only Real Thing Is Now, Dystopia, An Illusion of Importance. And it is really born out of this idea that there's a message in science fiction, more specifically in dystopian stories. I've been noticing a trend with dystopian stories, uh, certainly I, on lower tier things like The Walking Dead, but then on more highbrow things like um, whether it's Blade Runner 2049, the uh, Hunger Games films. I mean, there's a myriad of films, I'm naming off two or three ones that are in the, in the zeitgeist right now that are like mass media, but there's smaller films like The Road, uh, Casey Affleck, uh, released a film called Light of My Life, which oh my god, you guys should watch. It is amazing. Another dystopian film where uh, uh, a lot of the uh, the women are dead. That's really the only thing that I can say without spoiling the film. With that, I want to introduce my regular co-host Dan Ferlito and
2: regular, regular ass host
1: regular <laughs> R- R- and Patrick Green. Boring old Patrick. <laughs> And a recurring guest who we haven't had on the show or shows in a while, Robin, Dr. Robin Bunce. Thank you for coming on. It's a
3: great pleasure to be here. I'm broadcasting for my own personal dystopia over here in the UK.
1: Yes, yes. Where your your grand leader is in the hospital right now.
3: <laughs> that's the one. That's the one. <laughs> uh, apparently he's breathing without help. So that's good.
1: That's good. That's good. So thank you guys for doing this. Thank you for, uh, well, this is a re-recording, actually. We recorded it, and Patrick and I were talking that it was a good, like, place to sort of start, but maybe we should retool it and break it up into parts. And I was like, yeah, you're right. So here we are. And I just felt like we're we're all sitting here at home, most of us, and I wanted to sort of investigate what's going on in the world through the, the lens of film and stories. And, again, t- to... Give everyone some background on where I'm coming from with this. Like everyone else, I've watched, of course, the original Blade Runner, and then, of course, Blade Runner 2049. I really love the Hunger Game films. I'd watched the Divergent films. There's a film um, called The Giver, which is based off of a book with Meryl Streep and uh, Jeff Bridges I thought was really interesting. But even way before that, I was engrossed in The Walking Dead. This was years ago, and I watched up until season six, And towards the end of it, when I was like, okay, I'm watching the same things over and over, I'm sort of done, I I stood back and I was like, what? Why is everyone so interested in this show? What is it about this show that's attracting us? And I didn't have an answer for that. I had some, maybe some speculation. We're in the culture of streaming and binge watching, and that's what we're doing. We're watching shows in two days, and we're going on to the next thing. And I was sort of noticing this, like, we're sort of zombies. We're we're zombies of content. But that wasn't like this, this grand parallel that I'd pulled from The Walking Dead. That was one of the things that I could say, okay, I can see some sort of parallel with who we are and who we are becoming and elements of this show. But then I started watching more intently The Hunger Games and the rise of dystopian stories and why they were rising. And maybe the large audiences didn't know why they were rising, but people were consuming them. Young people were consuming them. You know, we had for a while when The Hunger Games were coming out, you had, uh, you know, I'll volunteer as tribute. Everyone was saying that online. You saw memes for, uh, Katniss Everdeen and everything that people were going through. And then you have like parallels of like um, survivor. And there's a lot of elements of survivor in hunger games. Um, and I-, I thought it was really interesting. Like, where are we going as a society? And now here we are in a pandemic, um, a worldwide pandemic that's affecting almost every con it is affecting every continent. And uh, personally, globally, everything and so now my question has been have these storytellers been prophets all along and have we been listening Um, are they prophets or is it just am I just reaching are we just reaching or is there something that has been embedded in these stories that global consciousness has been saying hey we're warning you this is a warning there's something coming and this story is telling you and that story is telling you so That's the the setup for this episode, and uh, that's my background on it. And so I'm interested, and anyone can start first, like, what do you guys think of dystopian stories? And have you been, have you felt like as viewers, as moviegoers, as readers, have you been drawn to those stories more than others in the past, let's say five to 10 years?
4: We're lucky to be in the city. They say the war was terrible that the rest of the world was destroyed. Our founders built the wall to keep us safe, and they divided us into five groups, factions to keep the peace.
1: There's a lot to unpack in there, (laughs) Jamie. Yeah, there is, which is why we're here. I know that was a lot to, of course, I'll edit all this out, but um, there's a lot there, but that's that's always what's going through my head as it relates to these stories, especially 2049, thinking about that film. Noticing in 2049, this last viewing that I had, um, which was last week, the distance between everyone and the masks people were wearing, like, holy shit, this movie is almost uh, fortuitous. Like this, mu- this movie is this this future that they pre- that they created is the future that we're living in in some ways, some small ways, but some large ways as well. So, um, I, I, ha- I had something from
5: a point that was kind of a while ago, so I don't know if if I, I it might be so. So the last you ended with asking about if we feel like there's been a change in the last five years.
1: Well, I th- let me rephrase this. My first question to all of you would be your ideas about dystopia. Have you are they stories and films that you've been drawn to more than you've been drawn to other stories? How have they sat with you? Have you thought about them more deeply? Okay,
5: cool. Yeah, you know, I guess before I get into my my own sort of like personal history with dystopian fiction and where I kind of feel it is right now in this moment in the world, I, I just I wanna go back for one second to something um you had alluded to earlier which is that this is the second time we're trying it and and i think what i'm noticing as i'm hearing you talk and as uh, as i'm sort of formulating my own thoughts is what a different place we were in even though that was only a few days ago that we did that the the context is changing so rapidly every single day is such a different adventure and the last time part of why we really needed to give it another shot is because i think we we were also weighed down by the reality of where we were that we were that there was almost like no energy to talk about it and tonight I feel almost like effervescent. I feel like there's so much to talk about and I feel like, uh, I'm in such a different sort of a mindset. So I guess a, a, I'm saying that to sort of say, I'm glad we're, we're giving this another shot and b also to say that I think we should be, you know, honest with ourselves and with our audiences when we say that this is something we're all kind of evolving with as well. And like these episodes might be a little hard to follow sometimes. And I think it's, it's sort of, it's because we're a little hard to follow because the world is hard to follow right now. So, um, I'm glad we're kind of taking this plunge. Um, In terms of dystopian fiction and, you know, where I've been with it in in my life and and where I feel it's going, uh, it's always been a a trope or like a context that I've loved and that I've sought out for all sorts of different reasons. But what I've noticed consistently has been that I have sought it out, right? So when I was like a teenager, you know, I was really into the Mad Max films, which I think are just terrific examples of, of dystopian filmmaking, obviously into Blade Runner. Uh, and and, and I, I think a lot of it for me then was a sort of escapism because it was sort of like science fiction, but for the most part set on an earth that was at least somewhat analogous to the earth that we actually inhabit, right? So it was something that was kind of real, but it was also elsewhere. It kind of felt like a daydream a little bit. Uh, I think in my sort of 20s, as I was dealing with kind of growing into a, a normal Oh, I guess not normal, but like uh, an adult who could, I guess, kind of be called normal. Like, I felt like I was the escapist realities of the uh, fiction and the and the films that I was looking for took on a different tone, right? Because it was about having uh, like uh, an outlet for my kind of inner life that wasn't really expressed in my outer life, because I was trying to get a job, you know, I was settling down and all these different things. And now, in my 30s, I feel like dystopian literature and dystopian film for me feels like it's sort of come full circle again. And it's um, become a, I guess not actually full circle. It's, It's opened up a new circle. It's kind of spiraled out because it's not only a look inward, but it's really a look outward for me. And I've noticed, especially since say 2010, since the walking dead era, since, you know, that sort of really took off in popular culture, I've noticed that the the uh, the metaphors are more overt. They're a little more obvious now. They're a little more unmistakable, right? Whereas post-apocalyptic. So take zombie fiction for example, for just one sort of big bucket of of tropes we can talk about for a moment, because you brought up *The Walking Dead*. So like it, the zombie fiction of the '60s was the was fiction about otherness, right? It Was fiction about outsiders the zombie fiction of the 70s and 80s was 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 almost like uh, it, it was it was entertainment right it was it was look at how crazy it is if we turn everything up to 11 and bring people back from the dead and it's funny and it's campy and it's gory and it's nuts right and then in the 90s and then especially into the 2000s it took on a very different tone which i think started with 28 days later at least in in my opinion which i think is one of the great horror films ever made i feel like things became very very honest And very frightening because they were unmistakably metaphorical. It was, there was no question anymore. This wasn't even like political commentary. This wasn't commentary on how we treat each other. This was commentary on the way society can fall apart if the wrong things are set into motion. And I think part of why now we've seen such a huge uptick in this in popular fiction um, is because we. Have storytellers who feel like it's more urgent than ever to talk about. It's more urgent than ever to sound the clarion bell that says if we don't stay on top of things, we will spiral again out um, into complete uh, nothingness, or into sort of something worse than nothingness, into violence and into you know genocide.
0: Ash, that transmission, Mother's deciphered part of it. It doesn't look like an SOS. What is it then? Well, I it looks like a warning
2: yeah, I was gonna jump on for a real quick distinction while I'm still wrapping up my thoughts. But um, Patrick, you started talking about you know how real some of these dystopian films can feel. and and I was gonna make that distinction while a lot of them could fall in the science fiction category as like a very specific subgenre. Not always, right? Sometimes they're just like, just slightly in the future. Pollution's gotten out of hand. Like they can go, it's on a spectrum, but they can be really, really plausible to something where you're like, oh, yeah, I could see that happening in another 40 or 50 years or something like that. And by doing that, I feel like dystopias and post apocalypse type stuff can carry a more direct warning to sort of go back to Jamie's original question about. Are these writers prophets and are they trying to warn us? Are they trying to avoid a certain outcome like 1984? Very classically critical, you know, makes you think about when government starts heading that direction, especially because Hitler is kind of the classic example, right? People look at Nazism when you think about something turning into a dictatorship. But in some ways, 1984 is more contemporary. It was written in, when was it written? Late 50s, Robin? Anybody? It's written in 1948,
3: published in 1949. I was thinking 58.
2: Okay. So yeah, just post World War II. Um, And so it's interesting to see sort of these more modern applications. Um, And I think also, you know, we have some quotes later and and Philip Dick talks about it, but the nature of our own reality is kind of always shifting depending on the context, your age, where you grew up, what you've been through. Did you live through a war? Did you not? Um, And so going through something collectively as a Really, as a planet, as humans, because every nation is dealing with this in one way or another, um, is making it very real for everyone to truly understand what it's like to worry about your neighbor and to like have similar issues and wonder about what's going to happen with your kids as this, you know, post-apocalypse thing is is happening. Um, and so, it's just really, really relatable as we've shifted more than a hundred years away from the Spanish flu pandemic and from World War One. I don't know, maybe you guys read history too, maybe you'll agree, I I get this distinct feeling that the hundred year mark is a very specific mark for humans, or around a hundred years. I feel like at a hundred years, unless you really dig into primary sources and people that can empathize and understand those people, it's really hard to relate to those generations, especially at that time, to understand what Germans or Italians or Americans, uh, the British went through in World War One, it's like you can read about it and it makes sense, but that generation is very distant from us. And as we continue to move forward, and supposedly, statistically, every 100 years, something like this happens, it really makes you ponder humanity, the current situation, whether governmental systems are really as safe and as nurturing as we think they are when they're not pressed by an emergency. Because let's face it, whether it's 9-11 or pandemics, we only see global emergencies or nation nationwide emergencies that strain a government and all the resources to their core to actually show you what doesn't work in your society. Those are very rare events. And so writers who make that happen within their worlds and try and warn us are really giving us a gift, right? if we listen but science fiction often traditionally been kind of written off for a long time uh you know until the second half of the 20th century so anyways i digress but um it's certainly an interesting time that we're living through and it's good to put it in perspective i think
3: i think dan's absolutely right and i think one of the really interesting things about dystopias is that every generation at least every generation since 1900 has had its own dystopia um and, and he's absolutely right as well uh, in terms of it being a warning and it being an extrapolation of current trends. And I guess the current trends of every generation are therefore reflected in the dystopias of every generation. So, I mean, thinking back, um, hang on, sorry. Yeah, so, yeah, so, I mean, for, for people who, who are really interested in wanting to follow up, the unfolding history of dystopias, there's an excellent book by a guy called Gregory Clays called um, Dystopia and Natural History, and it traces dystopia all the way back to the very first use of this term in 1747. Um, incidentally, it was spelled dustopia in those days, um, all the way through John Stuart Mill in 1868, who was kind of one of the first modern um, users of it, um, of, of the term and I think one of the things that Clays does, which I, which clarifies the concept, is he argues that dystopia is an attempt. it's more than just about seeing a bad world or a bad place. It's more than it's more than just that. What he wants to do is he wants to say that a utopia is a story, it's a fictional account of a world in which friendship and love have been realized. A dystopia, by contrast, is a world in which, Fear and loneliness, or the very best kind of coerced sociability exist. And I guess that's why in every generation dystopias are different, because the fears, the anxieties, the things that push us into ourselves and isolate ourselves from each other, change generation on generation.
1: I want to read a quote, and I'm probably going to butcher the name of the author, but the quote is... The world I remember was tired and racist and volatile as hell, ripe for a hostile takeover by a shit regime. We were already divided. The conquering was easy. And it's by Terra Mafi from Restore Me. And I thought that was really telling. Um, And another quote. Uh, to reference something that you were saying Robin and this was from an interview in Play- Playboy magazine um, an interview with Ray Bradbury and Playboy magazine whoever the, the reporter was says it's hard to imagine the man who wrote Fahrenheit 451 was not pr- trying to predict the future Ray Bradbury says it's prevent the future that's the way I put it not predict it prevent it and that's something that I've heard before from other writers um specifically i can't, the one that really specific one I, I can't remember but i remember them saying this is about a warning this is about the future we don't want to see even ridley scott um talked about in interviews with the original about the original blade runner talked about this is sort of where we see things headed and this is our version of a warning that we have the time now to prevent this from happening the world that the world of the original Blade Runner film isn't this, it might give people some comfort aesthetically in a strange way, me too, but it's not a world anybody wants to live in. Um, And that was a, a very salient point that he was trying to make, but I think it's been lost. And I've been thinking about those points and like the quote from Ray Bradbury that these storytellers really knew, they really had their finger on the pulse of, Something larger, something cataclysmic going to happen. Now, maybe it's a cyclical thing like you were saying, Dan, that it's every hundred years these these things happen to humanity and it's this marker. Um, and maybe we just, there's this for the right people, this global consciousness where people are tapped in, whether it's you're a scientist or a researcher working in pandemics, knowing that, hey, something's coming and we need to be prepared. Whereas the storytellers are saying the same thing. The people who are writing fiction or there was a term for people who are writing. Um, it's not science fiction like you were saying, Dan, but it's speculative fiction yeah, speculative. some of the reading that I've been doing recently where they were talking to some speculative fiction writers about this, that they respect what and you can, the film contagion talk about speculative fiction. I mean, it, it wasn't a science fiction film, but it also wasn't historical fiction either. It was almost like the film itself is a prophet or the film itself was, um, the loudest message we could have heard. Um, about what might be coming to the world, and here we are in it. Robin, you have you, you talked about giving lectures on dystopians and dystopias, and I was wondering if you could kind of elaborate what you've been talking about in that setting.
3: So I teach on a course um, here at Cambridge called um, "The Politics of the Future," and it's subtitled "The Politics of the Future, 1880 to 2080." And basically, it's a this examination of um, how. British and American, primarily British and American writers have conceptualized the future. It begins with some of the really great utopias of the Victorian period. Um, Edward Bellum is looking um, backward, for example. Um, H.G. Wells is modern utopia. And then by the end of the course, it's looking at apocalyptic fiction. It's, and in and then we've got in the middle of the course, we've got the, the great period of um, kind of classic dystopias, things like 1984, Brave New World, those kind of things. Um, so it's, I guess I'm in the politics department, and so therefore it's it's a politics course, it's a political theory course. And I guess it's about different ways of doing politics. Obviously, you could be Karl Marx, you can sit down, you can write a great philosophical treatise, or you could write a work of speculative fiction. Um, And this is about the politics of speculative fiction. Um, Another way of kind of phrasing that is perhaps what we're dealing with here is that utopian fiction, um, stuff like um Edward Bellamy's looking backwards, stuff like H. G. Wells' is the modern utopia. Perhaps that's social dreaming, as it were, so you know, people dreaming about society, and perhaps by contrast, dystopias, that's the social nightmare, as it were. Yeah, it's the kind of, you know, it's, it's the anxieties, it's the fears, it's the thing which is just around the corner or just over the horizon, which is terrifying. Um, and it's the story about that sort of social nightmare, as it were. But yeah, but I wanted to pick up on um, on something that, that Jamie said about the weird thing about dystopias, particularly in the modern world, is that they do give us some kind of aesthetic comfort. There is something deeply beautiful about Blade Runner. There's something incredibly beautiful about Blade Runner 2049. And that's kind of the paradox there at the heart of a dystopia. And that's what keeps us coming back for more. It is simultaneously com- very unsettling, deeply disturbing, and at another level, incredibly beautiful. Um, and that's, you know, that's the weirdness and that's the power of dystopian writing, and dy- whether it be in books or in film.
0: The world is built on a wall. It separates kind tell either side there's no wall
1: you bought a war or a slaughter a question that i have is what and not that there may be there there isn't an answer but i do find it interesting that dystopian stories are more popular than utopian stories and why would that be why are we more attracted to stories That are not just sadder in tone, but heartbreaking in tone, Uh, where you have uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road. I mean, I I don't know if you've read the book or seen the film. It is devastating. It's devastating. There's not much beauty in that. I mean, there is, but there isn't. It's not like Blade Runner. The Road is like visceral and... Um, disemboweling whereas Blade Runner I think or say Divergent or The Hunger Games which are also books seem to go to a different level whereas the road is very realistic it's very much like it's almost like The Walking Dead in some ways where it's man's capabilities of being very evil to each other and how scary that can be but we, we don't see a lot of films like oh you know and some of the films that you see about utopias are kind of ridiculous I'm just curious why, why that is why are we more attracted to dystopian stories as opposed to utopian ones what and what does that say about us
3: my answer to that would be again i'd say it's historical um in the sense that there is in the victorian period this great moment where lots and lots of utopias are being published um and they are very inspiring and they lead to the creation of social movements and utopian and utopian kind of clubs and societies some even lead to the foundation of communities um, which outlasts the authors of the original utopias but i think what happens is world war one world war one happens and then there's the bolshevik revolution in russia and there's nazism and the holocaust in germany and in central europe um and i think it becomes so much harder to imagine a utopia in a world after the mechanized slaughter of world war one after the mechanized slaughter of the holocaust um after Nazism and Stalinism. Um, They simultaneously present us with a world which appears to be irredeemable. And and in some sense, you could at least make the argument that some of the atrocities of the 20th century came out of utopian impulses. So utopianism is both discredited by experience and and the philosophy of utopianism appears to be discredited by the consequences thereof. which means that the world we live in, it's much harder to think about utopia or something that's compelling. It's much easier to think in terms of dystopia, that would be my answer. What's funny though
5: is that you would think that there would be this impulse towards escapism right in the midst of such cataclysm like, like the 20th century w- was just so incredibly difficult in so many ways like you were saying and yet each of those you know horrible events was was uh, accompanied by like art that was e- equally challenging right that was equally abstract and equally difficult and equally um, turbulent. Uh, and, and I feel like that's, it's it's funny that like in the context of the 20th century, we actually dove deeper into dystopia. Whereas in the 19th century, which although obviously had its share of hardships, like we kind of look at it as this, this period of enlightenment and this period of like branching out and this period of, you know, imperialism and, you know, which at the time wasn't as, right. I mean, a lot of things that looking back on it now were actually kind of proto-dystopian, but at the time felt utopian, right? And you had all these failed, I actually live just a few miles from a failed utopia from Fruitlands in harvard uh, massachusetts like you know the, the whole story of the 19th century is dotted with things like that right um and i feel like it's funny how we end up with fiction that kind of mirrors what we're actually doing and actually isn't escapist and i wonder if maybe the closer to real it feels the the more accurate it feels or the more urgent it feels and maybe the escapism that we're looking for isn't really escapism maybe it's kind of a parallelism you know maybe it's sort of something that's close enough to something recognizable but just far enough away that it 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 makes it clear what reality actually is because like when i was saying before about the 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 transition of zombie movies over time like the zombie stuff that was coming out in 2012 2014 like that was it for one thing it was it was very much monolithic right like it was almost all basically walking dead knockoffs and it was also uh, all tonally very similar. It was all basically just like the real enemy is the people. Like, oh, it's, you know, this big concept, like, you know, like the people eating each other aren't really the ones to worry about. It's the, you know, the humans you run across. And that was the thing. That was that was the idea in zombie fiction in the last 10 years, even after it got stale, which didn't take very long. And it's funny that like, and, and you know, it, that that was also in the world, this sort of, there was this emergent, sort of aggressive populism going on. There were all these sort of trends that now we're seeing the the ultimate realization of that felt sort of like that's what those zombie films were speaking to. It's funny, we end up not really escaping things as much as I feel like we we market ourselves to be doing.
2: Well, a lot of it's about relating, not necessarily escaping. I mean, obviously escapism is a thing, but from like right next door to a galaxy far, far away... Mm -hmm you want to relate to the characters, right? And good storytelling is the same no matter what. Um, I want to go back just for a second to a couple of points uh, that Robin and then Jamie brought up that made me think more about why dystopia basically Um, in terms of like the comfort food aspect of dystopia and the fact that you can wrap yourself up in like, the dirty, gritty, smelly, smoky, smoggy hallways or or alleyways of a dystopian L.A. in 2019, and yet you feel at home there, right? I think a lot of that is... I mean, sure, there's all this beautiful aesthetic, and obviously we could go off about Blade Runner for 100 hours talking about just the visuals and the aesthetics. (laughs) Um, But I think another image that... um, Has been paralleled again in reality right now. Is for example, I am legend. There's a scene, maybe when he's playing golf on the carry, I can't remember, but anyways, elevated position, you can like see the skyscrapers. I mean, there's trees growing through skyscrapers, right? There's something comforting about that to me. You see nature taking back over an urban area. It's like it's not the same as watching a cancer grow on something or watching blight like. Uh, you know, houses burned down through a Detroit neighborhood or something like that. Like, it's not the same thing. There's something comforting and natural about watching, you know, my friends in Italy were telling stories about, um, like mountain, uh, stags hanging out in his, in his back street, because he's like, the animals are coming back from the mountains because there's no people in the streets are taking back over the city. So that's one thing about the comfort that is kind of a little bit relatable. And then back to storytelling. Um, it's interesting how if you read uh, a history book about, let's say, uh, some of the bombings in World War II, pick a country, right? Civilians that went through these bombings. And so if you're getting a firsthand account, you're actually reading this grandfather's story about him being with his granddaughter and trying to get across the street while these fireballs were coming down the street because of these fire bombings in Dresden, for example. And so until you go through a world war or – at least until you you would live through a city that's been bombed, you can only relate to that so much. There's a point where your brain stops and can't connect because you cannot possibly know exactly what it's like to be in a city that's being firebombed in 1943 or whatever, right? you can't. You can get close with good storytelling. Um, but as we've gone through, again, now our own sort of Certainly in terms of emotions, right, we were talking about fear and despair and loneliness. In terms of that, we are living through our own apocalypse, our own dystopia to a certain extent. Um, And so whether you're writing science fiction or whether you're writing historical fiction or divergent fiction, when you make the characters relatable and make us feel like, yeah, these are the problems I would be dealing with if my neighborhood got the water cut for two weeks and all of a sudden I had to deal with my neighbors and you know, this guy's an asshole. That one's not, you know, it's all really, really relatable because you can picture yourself there. You can fill those roles with your friends and family. Um, and it makes sense. So I think there's something to that, that makes us think, um, about the closest ways that something could go wrong where it doesn't have to be this crazy science fiction story. I keep coming back to that theme really that it's really, um, just an alternate version of the reality that we're living, but it's very close and around the corner.
3: I completely agree with that. And in fact, that reminds me of a quote from William Gibson. Um, what Gibson says is that dystopia is here. It's just not equally distributed. Um, so yeah, so I'm living in a pretty utopian life right now because I'm in leafy Cambridge. Um, And you know, when all the people when all the people um, go on lockdown, you know, the cats take over the streets. And that's about as dystopian as it gets. But there are other people in other (laughs) parts of the world who are living in the dystopia that perhaps my child will grow up in, you know, one of the things that really struck me about Blade Runner 2049 was one of the clever things they did is they shot footage in other parts of the world in developing countries. And then they just told us that's LA. And all of a sudden, somebody else's reality becomes my dystopia if you see what i mean so yeah so dystopia is here it's just not equally distributed
1: that's one really important thing that i wanted to mention in terms of the reality of dystopia my father grew up in the projects in chicago the robert taylor homes and then they moved to the south side of chicago um i think most of us have been to chicago i grew up there um but if you ever go to the south side of chicago most it used to be brimming just alive most of the homes which are beautiful are like these grand old historic gray stone homes but most a lot of them are boarded up but people living are living there and it's terrifying and it's been like that for 40 years but that's where pre- the predominant african-american community lives there's not a Whole Foods there's not a Trader Joe's there's not like regular grocery stores that is the r- dystopia that they have are used to. So I I, I was, as I've been researching this episode and trying to understand what it is about dystopia and um, as opposed to utopia, where oftentimes utopias aren't utopias. They're actually dystopias for, I grew up in a commune where we were all cloistered with our 500 people and it was supposed to be this ideal Christian, like thing that Paul wrote about when in fact, what was happening was actually dystopian. You're talking about generations and dozens of, of cases of child sexual abuse. So is this, it was actually a dystopia we were living in while we were trying to convince ourselves that no, this is the way everybody should be living. So I, I do feel like it's interesting what we're all experiencing right now as a, being in our homes, there's not a lot of people on this, there's nobody on the streets essentially for some neighborhoods there are but for a lot of them there aren't this is the way a lot of African American people have grown up in their own ghettos where it is dystopian, you know, uh, and it's one of those things where until it happens to you, you won't believe it exists um, and now it's happening to everyone um, and I just I find it really fascinating but I, I, it's, it's almost like the world is waking up to equality in some ways, um, masked as dystopia, masked as the possibility if we don't change course. Um, but I just felt like it was really important to mention, the sort of current dystopias that are existing in our world and have existed and then I think about like a film like The Village by M. Night Shyamalan and it was this utopian world that they were living in but in fact it was not it was a dystopian world that they were living in and they were using fear to keep everybody there to keep everyone I I love the film actually I think it's really beautiful and it reminds me of growing up myself Um, but as I pose the question why, why utopia but most of the stories of utopia that I've seen in film or TV, something happens and you discover the underlying secret is they're in control. They've always been in control. They don't want this. They don't want that. They're trying to do this. They're trying to stop, like whether it's the giver or um, so, or, or or the village. Most of these stories end up where the end is the dismantling of it all because it was a lie to begin with. It was never utopia, which I, th- I find fascinating.
2: I think there's a... Uh really good college paper somewhere in here that we're not about to do. But I think the question is interesting of a is a pandemic truly an equalizer and B was it different in other ones? So for example, if you go back to the black plague, um, which took out like what a third of the European population at the time, I mean something, something insane. It was pretty heavy. Um, so obviously money makes a difference, right? You you can afford to have food brought to your house, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The rich are always going to do better in an emergency because they have more resources. However, um, one thing, and I'll keep this politically somewhat neutral, although it's a statement about the current state of affairs, so it's difficult to not completely mention politics, but um, I'm noticing that class and race and disadvantage uh, and all these things don't go away during a pandemic. (laughs) So you can see the hospitals that are better equipped and you can see the people who are not going to have a problem getting a test and getting taken care of. And it's not the homeless people in Oakland. I can tell you that much. You know what I mean? So it's interesting because while, Maybe something like the Black Plague was a true equalizer at the time because it was like there was no money that was going to save you from that shit. I mean, you could stay indoors more, but like it was going to get a third of the people and kill them um, versus what we're running into now where it's like, I mean, there are some examples of prime minister of the UK getting it, for example. So certainly rich, powerful people are not immune, um, but they do have different resources. I find that really fascinating to see how it disproportionately affects The disenfranchised poor um, and disadvantaged people because that's a real thing that in the end can be the difference between life and death i mean that's you know that's how far our vote goes really down the road
0: (sighs) there's no fresh start in today's world any 12 year old with a cell phone could find out what you did everything we do is collated and
4: quantified everything sticks
3: was that how you justify stealing
0: I take what I need from those who have more than enough. I don't stand on the shoulders of people with less. Robin, huh? I think I do more to help someone than most of the people in this room, than you. You think maybe you're assuming a little too much?
2: Maybe you're being unrealistic about what's really in your pants other than your wallet. Ouch. You think all this can last? There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne.
4: You and your friends better batten down the hatches, cause when it hits,
5: you're all going to wonder how you ever thought you could live so large and leave so little for the rest of us. But actually the the black plague uh, uh, did disproportionately affect poor people as well and marginalized communities uh, which is which I didn't know about until this week actually I was reading about it I, that's something I cuz I had assumed because it had mowed through such a significant amount of the population that it basically just, you know, killed indiscriminately but actually i mean you know the 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 sort of seafaring communities and the minority communities along the coastline and the communities that were involved in trade routes were largely you know sort of outsider communities and and lower class communities because of that they were disproportionately affected because the rich people could basically just be ensconced in their towers and not have to go into town you know not be surrounded by the bodies that were just sitting out in the in the you know open drains right uh, so that that's something that is is amazing that even back then it was still so disproportionate, but I do think that there 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 is a it's this is not a moment of like equity, it's not a moment of equality, but there is a moment of universality in this I think, and that's something that I, I hope we don't forget about because everybody is affected. Obviously, the ways in which we're affected are just vastly vastly different. You know, I mean, like uh, the way that I'm affected by this in, in the immediate term is just basically I just get to spend time with my family and be indoors and be safe, you know, for the most part um, and be paid. Right. Like I, I'm extraordinarily lucky in that regard. But even though I am lucky, I'm, I'm feeling the effects of this in a, in a very deep emotional way. And I'm feeling the anxiety of family members and friends who are not as lucky as I am in this circumstance. I know many people who are sick. I know many people who have been hospitalized with this, not many people, a few people who have been hospitalized. I know people who might go to the hospital. Uh, so like there's that anxiety level, there's that awareness of watching my, even something as superficial as my, you know, Dan and I, were talking about our retirement accounts a few weeks ago, like watching my stock portfolio go through the four. Watching the
2: black plague, destroy a third of our stock portfolio, <laughs> right? It was, it
5: was harrowing. Right. And, 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 it, and it's, and of course that's, that is superficial and minor and it will rebound. And at the end of the day, you know, I, I, I happen to be you know, a white guy in the United States and I'm in a position of power that I didn't deserve, but I kind of came into just by virtue of my birth. And I need to be aware of that. But I do feel a very deep emotional impact from what is happening right now. And I think that's something that, um, that people all around the world, the thing is, is that there there are a lot of people in the world who never have any real reason to feel fear. And into that lack of a reason, we kind of pour things like stress or we pour things like anxiety or we pour things like addiction. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of people in the world who don't really need to be afraid. You know, we're not going to get eaten by an animal. We're probably not going to get anything pestilential. We're probably not going to be evicted from our homes. There's a lot of a lot of safeguards around certain types of people in the world. And those types of people are afraid, I think, in at least somewhat of a real way right now. And that's something that's universal. So it's it's worth noting, I think.
2: I just want to make a really small sidebar that Patrick is such a good podcaster because he's like full-time on 12 different shows that he preempted my question about the black plague and did the research and had an answer ready for me before he even <laughs> knew what the question was. I'm just saying
3: that's, that's pretty talented. That's outstanding podcasting.
5: You know, I, I went, I went into the future.
2: speculative, speculative, <laughs> speculative fiction like... on dance, on dance questions. You know what's interesting
1: that's... about the black plague though, is I was just watching a documentary on that. Last night, and they were talking about the graves that they were digging for the people because there are a lot of people who weren't claimed, who were no names. They were burying in the in a plot in the middle of the city. Cut to New York City burying unnamed people, unclaimed bodies in the middle in a cemetery in the middle of a city. Um, that, that they're layer. not unclaimed or unnamed, but no. Well, there are this yes, there are there are some. That was the report that I had seen where they're saying the the officials in charge were saying there are some bodies that are unclaimed that we don't know who these people are. Um, and I thought, wow, here we are 150 years later from the black plague or further. And we're doing the exact same things. How cyclical life is, is incredible to me that we go through these things over and over and over and over and over. Um, and that I'll kind of want to pivot to, uh, a specific question for all three of you. And in terms of, a story of dystopia or a dystopian story or whatever that has really affected you. And it's something that you think about. Um, and why, why do you think about it?
2: Just real quick. Cause I was actually going to ask Robin the date on this earlier, but just to correct the record, Black Plague is 1300s, 1200s, 1349, it, 1300s. 1349?
5: 1349, 1349 to
2: 1352
5: was the, was like okay. the, that was, I, the, I knew the, it was, that was where it basically decimated. Europe. Yeah. I knew it was a long so time it's like, ago. I just felt so like, not remember. But it the, recurred all the way through the 1500s, 1600s. And indeed, it's still the bubonic plague. Like the, the actual, the the pestilence itself is still an active thing. It's just we can counteract it now. But there have been flare-ups of it, you know, as recently as a couple of years In
1: Africa. Oh, yeah. It still happens in Africa yeah. quite right. regularly it's just to some degree. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. To all of you um, in terms of stories of dystopia or whether it's a pandemic and a dystopia is born from that, uh, what has stuck with you? Blade Runner aside, we, we've we covered Blade Runner a lot. Obviously, it's a film or films that are really um, important to us. I think we're going to eventually touch on them again in this conversation. There's some specific things like isolation that Blade Runner 2049 touches on that I think we're all living in right now, which I feel like is fascinating and frightening. Um, but I'm curious whether it's The Road or, or even The Walking Dead. Like, What has stuck with you? One that
2: I can think of a little bit, more recently is uh, *Children of Men*. Um, just, what a great movie! I'm sorry, but what a what a what a masterpiece of a film. Yeah, I we're gonna, gonna do a that. frame rate on it yeah. soonish. It's on our list. Um, yeah, um, I was gonna say that one again, I keep coming back to this sort of feeling of realism and feeling of plausibility for me. That's what gets me right for me. It's as much as I love watching giant hunter killer machines in Terminator, like squashing skulls. And it's like, Whoa, dude, the future could be crazy. Like I have fun watching that, but I'm not buying that that's actually a realistic future for us. Right. Whereas children of men, it's like, Oh, messing with genetics. um, And that type of disaster happening. I mean, I've read reports about um, synthetic like from researchers in Europe that they've been doing for a while on how synthetic clothing affects um, overall live sperm count on men and the percentage of male uh, like embryo results. It, it keeps skewing lower and lower. And some of the more apocalyptic predictions are that men could become sterile from it or like, a, you know, which is like a very children of, of men kind of concept. Um So, yeah, I I think that whole what would happen if what would happen if honeybees went extinct? Like that's one people worry about all the time. Right. We've talked about how, like the last week I saw a bee fly by and I told my neighbor, oh, look, a bee. Like I was watching a freaking pterodactyl fly by, you know, and it's like, no shit, it's a bee. Those used to be everywhere when I was a little kid, you know. Um, So, yeah, there's something about that, assuming obviously the story has good characters, et cetera. Um, I mean, the the sort of urban warfare scene in Children of Men where they're moving through that city and those two factions are fighting each other. I remember thinking, I was like, dude, I think this is some of the most realistic sounding and looking like bullet back and forth that I've seen. Like, this feels like a documentary. Like that's, you know, because the filmmaking is so great in that film. Um, But in this particular instance, as different from like a Godzilla movie where you you want certain things in the looks, but it's not about, could this really happen? I think these types of films really make us question. Yeah. What if we had an issue with our genetics? What if we had an issue with our children? What if our air became toxic? What if our water, uh, if we ran out of water, that's a realistic water wars or a thing that could be happening in the future, you know? So, um, that's what always sucks me in is those little things that connect it to our current society.
5: Dan, I, 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 I might have misheard you, but I think you said Godzilla's not real. And I just want to just, for the record, say I disagree uh, with you on that. Uh, I think that's very <laughs> realistic. And I have an objection.
3: <laughs> Noted. Godzilla's been nominated a key worker in Britain. So, you know, Godzilla doesn't have to, doesn't have to pay the have He's essential. Oh, that's he's definitely fast.
2: essential. Yeah. <laughs> this building must be destroyed. Oh, man. So,
4: you've got faith over here, right? A chance over there. Well, yin and yang. Sort of,
2: yeah. Oh, Shiva and Shakti.
4: Lennon and McCartney. Well,
2: <laughs> look, <laughs> Julian
4: and Theo. Yeah, there you go. Julian and Theo met among a million protesters in a rally by chance, but they were there because of what they believed in in the first place, their faith. They wanted to change the world, and their faith kept them together. But by chance, Dylan was born.
1: <gasps> this is him?
4: Yeah, that's it. It'd have been about your age. Magical child. Beautiful. Their faith put in praxis. Praxis? Happened. What happened? Chance. It was their sweet little dream he yeah. had. Little hands, little legs, little feet. Little lungs. And in 2008, along came the <laughs> flu pandemic. And then by chance, it was gone. Oh, Jesus. (sighs) You see, Theo's faith lost out to chance. So, why bother if life's going to make its own
3: choices? That is such a hard question to answer, from my point of view, in the sense that I'm increasingly aware that dystopian fiction, whether it be books or whether it be TV shows, or whether it be films... Um, has been the kind of spine of my life. Um, and for whatever reason, as a young person, I was very, very affected by, first of all, H.G. Wells' Time Machine, um, which is a great dystopia, and George Wells' 1984. Um, and I think one of the reasons that George Wells' 1984 affected me so much is I read it in 1984. It was in the middle of the period of history that is sometimes called the Second Cold War. Um, Thatcher and Reagan... Um, were dominating the airwaves, telling us that communism was the big enemy. Um, 1984 also has this kind of backstory of there being a nuclear exchange um, at some point in the 1940s or 1950s, which has ruined parts of Britain. And again, during this period, there was talk of, you know, a limited nuclear war in Europe and Mutually assured destruction had been abandoned by the American government and they were now on nuts. The nuclear utilisation system or whatever it was called, where they were where they were genuinely drawing up plans for limited nuclear exchanges, which would affect Europe. Um, So there was something about the context I was living in, which made 1984 all the more um, salient to me um, as a teenager growing up. Um, These days. Oh, my goodness. The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, my goodness, The Handmaid's Tale. Um, and I think watching the first season, um, I was completely blown away by the sophistication of the depiction of power dynamics, um, the ways in which, um, you know, power can be subverted and it can be used by different parties in different ways. It was just stunning. And I'm just going to shout out, I'm sorry, I could go on forever. I'm going to stop with this one. J.G. Ballard's High Rise. There is something. There is something... I think J.G. Ballard's High Rise comes out of a kind of new wave of science fiction that comes in the 1960s, where sci-fi really comes of age, where authors realise that science fiction is no longer about exploring outer space. It's about exploring inner space. And what you get in High Rise is you get, what does it mean to be sane in a world that is crazy? That's the kind of question that high rises ask, are asking or answering or whatever. So, yeah, so in a world where it makes sense for the most important and most powerful people in the world to sustain inequality and to conceive of nuclear exchanges, in a world that is that crazy, what does it mean to be sane? Um, and, and I think that's what's there in, in high-rise. Also, lots of stuff about concrete, which is like my favourite substance. I'm a big fan of brutalism. So, yeah, so time machine. Time machine. Um 1984 um oh and final one more octavia butler's parable of the sower there is oh my goodness it the road is like one facet of that book okay so octavia butler's book is so broad and so what's the word so broad and so dense and so rich that you know you can spin individual stories out of that book because there are so many ideas in it so yeah all of those things and i think yeah, as I say, dystopian fiction has been the spine, which has kind of animated my life. It's been a constant source of interest to me. Um, and, you know, I, I, I just love the fact that we are living in a period which is so rich and fertile for dystopian fiction.
2: A chair, a table, a lamp, There's a window with white curtains. And the glass is shatterproof, but it isn't running away they're afraid of. A handmaid wouldn't get far. It's those other escapes. The ones you can open in yourself given a cutting edge. Or a twisted sheet and a chandelier.
0: I try not to think about those escapes. It's harder on ceremony days, but Thinking can hurt your chances. My name is Alfred. I
4: had another name, but it's forbidden now.
0: So many things are forbidden now.
5: You know, Robin, I I actually forgot we were recording this tonight, and I just actually had saved a a photo to my phone to send you of a, a hotel in Tunisia. That is the most astonishing, dilapidated, brutalist structure.
2: Like, so I'm going to send that to you after the show before I forget. That's too.
3: Um, we had, you we had you we so had
2: much. A, we had a three uh, limit, uh, three maximum on brutalism in that's the show. Right. I knew it was
3: going <laughs> to. <laughs> oh my yeah, God! You, um, you two together. Oh, brutalism. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, that's hey, another woo.
5: podcast. So hang on. So, so uh, we should do that though.
3: Uh, so, so uh, the, the book by Octavia Butler was called what? Soa it's called the parable of the sower it's the first <laughs> parable of the sower. So yeah, so it's kind of referencing this biblical story. Um, and it's just incredible. Um, Octavia Butler, apparently uh, the story she tells is she was in a, in a movie theater and she's watching a film and she thought, well, this is rubbish. I could do better than that. And she just started writing and, you know, now she's this um, celebrated writer of speculative fiction. Um, yeah. And her, her work is just, inc- it's incredibly rich and it's, it, Uh, And it's incredibly rich in terms of the political insights, in terms of the characters, in terms of the stories. You know, uh, yeah, but Parable of so it's a great place to start with her work.
2: I want to read the crap out of that thing. She just had an article uh, published about her um, on like a feminism angle. They were talking about, you know, uh, how prolific she was in science fiction as a female writer and outnumbered, et cetera. I can't remember if it was The New Yorker or what, but it, it just came out like a couple of weeks ago. It was a really good article.
5: Um, so for for me, th- and this is something, Jamie. I know you wanted to touch on these um, as well, but the the fiction of Jeff Vandermeer, and I'll let you do the the quote in a moment. Um, to me, is is the is the most like evocative, and it's not necessarily dy- dystopian, but it is like annihilative, and it, literally the first the first of the books in the in the Southern Reach trilogy is is Annihilation, which is fitting. Um, But his fiction, to me, feels the most apocalyptic. It feels the most dystopian because it speaks to the thing within me that I'm most afraid of.
0: Can you describe its form? No. Was it Cartman-based? I don't know. What did it want? I don't think
5: it wanted anything. But
0: it it attacked
5: you. So I'm going to pause for a second on that and go back for a moment because we were talking earlier about how prophetic, you know, artists are, and you know, going back even to like Dante writing the Inferno. I, I think what what people write about when they're afraid is a really great window into what a society is afraid of. Like we were talking about in the beginning, right? So like, you know, whereas Dante was afraid of damnation, right? Writers in the 20th century were afraid of of annihilation and writers in the 21st century, century are afraid of, you know, globalization that reaches a part where we can't stop things once they spin out of control. Right. So for me, just speaking personally, the thing that I'm most afraid of is is annihilation in the sense of losing my ability to discern reality from falsehood and more than that losing my ability to have a vocabulary to realize that's what's happening so like for for me like the the big existential moments of terror that i have in my life and i do have these sometimes is for example when you wake up from a dream for a moment and you're lying alone in the dark uh, and you're looking up and you don't know if you you don't, you don't you don't you don't you don't it's not that you don't know who you are anymore it's that you don't know that you are anything for a moment like that moment where you just sort of don't realize what reality is and then it kind of filters back in and you kind of seeps back in and you start having a context and you're like oh that was a nightmare okay i'm patrick i'm lying in bed okay i got it again but there's that little moment that happens where it feels truly dystopian right in the sense that there's no dream anymore right there's no there's no togetherness like robin was saying in the beginning right there's no there's no there's no dream together so th- this is a long way of getting to the things that freak me out the most or the things that make me feel that way even for a fleeting moment so Lovecraft is a perfect example of that, right? H.P. Lovecraft uses the vocabulary of strangeness to break down the vocabulary of reality that we kind of get get by on every day, and Jeff Vandermeer similarly does that, and and in my opinion even more exquisitely because it's more contemporary, so it feels more relatable in some ways. So his fiction is uh, is is this? It's like the slow breaking apart of recognizability, and sp- and in, in its in that in place of recognizability, putting things that are just abstract enough that you know that they're not real, and um, in in annihilation and the Southern Reach trilogy of which it's a part, you know that takes the place that that that's the sort of alien force that's that's coming. But um, I would recommend people who are looking for real dystopian Jeff Vandermeer fiction uh, to look at the Born books. Uh, the first one came out like four years ago. It's it's B O R N E. Um, and it's uh, the setting for, and then the, the latest installment is Dead Astronauts, which just came out um, at the end of last year and was just an extraordinary book. And The Strange Bird is the one in between. Uh, and, and those books deal with this idea that they're, we basically bioengineered our way into our own oblivion by messing around with our ability to manipulate life forms to do our bidding. So basically, after technology reaches a certain point, biotechnology becomes the thing we really care about we care about organisms that can replenish themselves that can you know take on different traits depending on their applica- application that we can fuck that we can eat that we can you know love that we can kill that we can murder for fun that we can torture to get our kicks right and that at a certain point these things spiral out of control and um become instruments of our own annihilation as as things go on and and that those books are so full of this sense of like what is going on in my head as I'm reading this, I feel like I'm losing, like I can still recognize the words, but they're losing meaning for me, but there's some, there's a meaning in it that I can't quite figure out, you know? And that's like that same fear that you have when you know, there's a meaning in this dark moment at night where you've woken up from a nightmare and you don't know what that meaning is because you don't remember what meaning was for that one instant. So speaking personally to me, what's sitting with me right now is Jeff Vandermeer's fiction. And I guess weird fiction in general, because I guess, um, that's what I'm most afraid of. And I think in closing that looking back at, at why authors have been prophetic or why screenwriters have been prophetic or why you know all sorts of different genres of art have been prophetic, I think it's because you either write about what you love or you write about what you observe or you write about what you fear, right? Sometimes you love and fear and observe all the same thing. A lot of the time you do all those three things at once, right? But I think the things that you fear are the things you write most urgently about because it feels like you need to get it out of yourself, like you need to exercise your own fear. You need to get it out into the world because if you can do that, if you can push through it, maybe you can save yourself. And in saving yourself, you can save other people too. And I think that it's no uh, accident that that the fiction of fear and that the storytelling of, of abandonment and dystopia are the stories that have stuck with us most deeply because it's what, at the end of the day, when we wake up at night, we're afraid of.
1: Please join us again next week for the conclusion of this discussion. Thank you for listening.